Hi, this is Elizabeth, and I've listened to every single episode of the When Dating Hurts podcast. I have not been in an abusive relationship myself, but I've had friends who have, and it's good to know the signs early to get out early. Bill, thank you for all that you do. The When Dating Hurts podcast continues to grow in popularity. The more who listen, the more who will know the realities of dating and domestic violence. In the meantime, the When Dating Hurts book, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook, is being purchased and read by concerned parents, teachers, victims, and survivors, and of course, those who are currently dating. Education leads to empowerment. That way, If a potential abuser is targeting you or someone you care about, you will know how to detect it and how to break free and stay safe. Up next, another survivor story to illustrate how an innocent person can become manipulated and trapped in abusive relationships. My interview with Annie is with a smart, innocent, creative, and fragile woman who is doing her best to find a sustainable life for herself. Her openness is on full display over the next three episodes. We see her as a third grader, a high schooler, and a college student in an art college. She will move from the Midwest to Brooklyn, New York, such a drastic change of scenery that gets bumpy, to say the least. We find ourselves pulling for Annie to make lasting friendships, meaning friends who treat her with respect. We want her to settle down and find balance so she can make music and enjoy her life. Annie is a survivor. Her journey to become a survivor begins now. This is part one. I know this is going to be a super informative conversation. One of the key things I know we'll get to are the three relationships that really got off to a bad start and didn't get any better. One of the things that I'm asked a lot is, well, if somebody has a really awful, unhealthy relationship, how could they ever wind up in other ones? And you're going to hear that. You're going to be able to understand that. Annie, thank you for approaching us and wanting to be on. Hello, Bill. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful for your work. It's really, really important. And I'm just happy to be the conduit. I'm the connection between wonderful people like you who want to open up and explain what's happened to them so that others will benefit. And usually the people who, like you, do that wind up helping themselves too. As it turns out, it's kind of a little bonus feature. It seems to come to find some version of catharsis, which I think is just great. What I'd like you to do is give us an idea of growing up, and then we'll move into some of the other things that we want to talk with you about. I am from the Midwest, currently live in Milwaukee. I spent a lot of time not here, and that's a huge, huge part of my story. My dad was in the Air Force, so I was born in Texas. From Texas, my family, just me, mom, and dad, lonely only here, lonely only child, moved to Alaska. I had no memorable contact with my extended family until I was around six. Because you're on the move, basically. I mean, you're here, then you're there. We were... 
wherever my dad needed to be. Yes. I'm around six years old and we make our way back to Wisconsin where both of my parents are from. So I get to start meeting some family. Soon after I start meeting my extended family, the elders began to pass away. Let's see, great aunts, great grandmother, then grandmother. Oh. Um, yeah, I was in sixth grade when my grandmother passed. Oh, that's sad. Okay. Uh, I never met my mom's father. There's a picture of him holding me, but I'm like a little bean. Like, I don't remember this. But yeah, that was a, that's significant because I've heard about, I guess there is, there's research on this where kids who move around a lot in those early years of development, mm-hmm. they tend to have some difficulty with, uh, <laughs> with relationships later. Because everything's so darn temporary. Yeah, a sense of like satisfaction with life. Having a home base and having a sense of family, no matter what. Like, no family is perfect, as we well know. But those things are important in those formative years. Mm -hmm. So I had questions around that. I had questions around home. What does that feel like? What is that? And around family. What is a sibling? What are those experiences like? You know, when you're a kid, you're like, everybody's like me. And the world's like, actually, (laughs) no. Very different. Yeah. So I had this sense of loneliness, deep sense of loneliness and alienation. So when I started school, I was bullied. It was an easy target because only children spend time with adults primarily. So it's different from being around other kids. You're socialized differently. So you're going to be weird because you're going to probably say things like adults. People are going to be like, she's weird. Why does she talk like that? I didn't understand why anybody would be a bully. Being that I'm an artist, artists are highly sensitive. That's what makes our gift so strong because we feel more and we can, we can express more. And that's very mm-hmm. important. For me at that time, I was a little kid. I was just heartbroken constantly. I did not understand why people would be cruel. In third grade, I showed signs of depression. And like oh. I said, when I reached out to you, there's a, a through line. Like my, my mental health journey is a parallel line with my relationship journey. And you'll see why. Are you saying that as the relationship journey if it were to rise or fall, then your mental health would rise and fall with it. Is that what you mean by parallel? Uh, that's an excellent question. What I mean to say is that as I am learning about my own self, my own experience, my experience of the world, I had certain questions and those led me to certain types of relationships with other people. Oh, interesting. And tell me more about that. In a broad sense, What you believe and the questions that you have manifest. They'll lead you, they'll lead you to things. Like there's that that quote, like live the questions. It's in like books about letter to a young artist, I think is the, the source. But you really do. The questions that you have internally, like for me, what makes a person evil? What makes what is evil? What makes a person evil? What makes a person harmful? Where did I get those questions answered? Are we still in the third grade when these thoughts are occurring to you? Oh, yeah. It's been, it's been with me from the start. 
because of being first introduced to other kids and being like, why, why is this not going well? Why did they do that? Why would they say that? Why are they selecting me to pick on? That for sure. But also how could you say that to another person? Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah. Oh boy. New kid, new kid alert, fresh meat. And then you had it happen over and over. Yeah. It never got any easier. This is a time where I was, I was showing signs of depression, like this mm-hmm. young. Now, when you say that for our listeners, what would be for someone that young a sign of that? I mean, is it just you seem like a sad little kid or there's something more than the obvious? Oh, no, there's more. There's more. I walked like this. I walked hunched over in a um, posture that was protecting my heart. I walked physically in a way that was like I wanted to protect myself from other people. So my posture was a big thing. I would get sick before I went to school. One memory that's really clear in my mind is my mom was driving me to school and I said, can you please pull over? I opened the door. I threw up, closed the door. She dropped me off at school and said, have a good day at school. Not a lot of comfort coming from mom. No, there was, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in, in uh, therapy and, and support groups around this. I want to give the disclaimer, like my parents are very good people. They Mm -hmm. did the best with what they had. And at times it was not enough. Do you think that she figured, well, you're going through a phase and she'll, she just needs more time? Well, what I found out later, because we have been able to speak about this, is that she had an inkling and her and my dad would talk about it. But none of this was, none of it included me. There would be, what did she say? She went to the school counselor and told them to keep an eye on me. So she knew, but going about it that way, the effect on me was, well, now people are watching me. Nobody's speaking to me and helping me understand anything about this. And now I just feel surveilled. Okay. Yeah, that was rough. I had this great, brilliant idea to like try Catholic school one time because <laughs> that's the, the, uh, how I was raised. My mom took me to, my mom and dad went to a Catholic church. They went to a, like a parochial school when they were raised. They both did. Yeah. They talk about the nuns, you know? Oh, I, I could uh, do a whole podcast on the nuns. Believe me. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Not always, not always the, uh, the most comfortable group of people. <laughs> But what you were talking about is what was public school maybe first? It was public school first. And then they shifted you into maybe parochial? Which was totally my idea because I thought. You thought there could be a bunch of sweet ladies because they're church related? Well, I thought if people generally are believing the teachings of Jesus, then they will behave mm-hmm. in a better way. Right. So then I get my little heart broken again. Because I realized that is super not the case. And I saw that adults were just as bad, if not worse, than kids. I saw some... And when you say adults, do you mean teachers? Yeah, teachers, uh, administrators. Here's a really simplistic example, but times where I would be a target of some bullying and I would lash out. 
and then I would be the one in trouble. Oh, right. Okay. I'm sure that happens a lot and it just doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't at all. No, they don't go after the perpetrator. They go after the victim. Yeah. And it's like, we see that, we see that in a lot of these stories involving adults and law enforcement and the system at large. Being a kid and starting to see that from an early age, I was like, who do I trust? Yeah. What's real? Where's the fairness in this? What is real? Where, where's the fairness? Where are the good people? And immediately having a sense of like, I have to, I have to protect myself somehow because nobody else is going to. You're really on your own. Yeah. So I felt, and I really, uh, I developed some coping strategies at that time, internalizing self-blame in a huge way. And children will do this. They'll make a problem outside of themselves. They'll shrink it down to their own child size so that it seems more manageable, so that they feel like they can control it. So that's really what that was. And I thought, their words can't hurt me if I say them to myself first. Then I own that. And they can't uh, own it. Uh, which is theory. It's a child logic. It happens. You steer your way through elementary school into high school. You're taking these feelings that are hurting you, trying to turn them into armor of some kind. Yeah. So what's high school like? Horrible. I hated it. Is high school parochial now? It's still like... No, uh, no. That lasted... I don't even think it lasted a full year. Okay. You found that experiment didn't work? No way. This is actually worse. You're in public school. What part of the world are you in at this point? This is Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay. Green Bay is where I went to school as a kid. Did you stay in the same high school all four years? I did. Yeah. It was the location my parents chose was like very well located. So like the elementary school, the middle school and the high school were really, really close. When you go to high school, aren't a lot of kids that were in the elementary school coming there with you? Yeah. Sliding right over? Yeah. Only it was a huge school. I graduated with like 500 kids. Now, you must have some friends along the way. You're not still on your own path by yourself, are you? Oh, that was another thing. Uh, friendship was really difficult and confusing. In high school, I basically had one friend. I never understood that either. So I had this one best friend in high school. We were like the creative art girls and we made our own weird clothes. And my way was to do a lot of extracurricular stuff. I did a lot of music and a lot of dance, not a lot of sleeping because I don't, I don't really understand how like in high school or in any school, like when, when do kids sleep? You have to do all of this crap during the day. Then you have hours of crap after school and then you're supposed to do homework. So when do you sleep? I didn't really, but I had this very performative exterior to appease. I was like, if I can show the world perfect and overachieving, then I'm covered. All of these authority figures will not be angry. They'll leave me alone. I was very afraid of angry people. Okay. And my friend, yeah, she, I loved her. She was my best friend. Was she also trying to overachieve and do a lot of things you're doing? No, nah, she was kind of the opposite. Oh, 
She's like, eh, what the hell? Yeah, in fact, there was one time where her report card was like left at my house and my parents found it and didn't read the name. And they were like, what is this? And I was like, see, if I didn't do this well, you would be mad. Like, that's what I think in my head. Sure. Which supports like this, this thing that I'm doing to cope. I'm like, that's not even mine. If you weren't perfect, you got a glimpse of what was coming. Yeah. It's the, those, um, Cognitive dissonance, right? You're saying one thing, but this is showing me another thing. Oh boy. Too much. So yeah, I held back a lot in friendships. I developed this kind of secret life. So I'd have my daytime life and then my my like nighttime life where I could be not perfect and I could experiment and yeah, just have it just be mine. I was a good kid. Like I didn't do crazy stuff. I was still afraid of a lot of things, but also very intrigued by, by being alone and, and kind of like the transgressive aspect of like sneaking out or something like that. But yeah, like even when I would sneak out, like the, the great thing would be that I did it rather than like what I did with that time. Getting away with it. Yeah. And I was drawn to not healthy people just naturally, because uh, I feel like it's, it's obvious. I could really only relate with people who I knew weren't happy. I thought the people who are happy and who don't have problems are unrelatable to me. They'll, and they will never understand me, so like, why try? Did you find them boring, too? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, all these things carry through. Mm-hmm. In, uh, I'll mention this uh, 12-step program that I highly recommend. It's called ACOA. It stands for Adult Children of Alcoholism and Family Dysfunction. Everybody is welcome in this program. Everyone. They call what I just described addicted to excitement. So people who are not, who don't give you this feeling, this like a kind of chemical just high within your body are boring. You want the kind of adrenaline rush that they can only bring. Yeah. And that's because that's what you're used to in one form or another. Like that's your body has been conditioned that that way. Your psyche has been conditioned that way. Fortunately, there's a program that's specifically designed to help you heal and move through that. When did you become acquainted with that? How old would you be? That would be many, many years from high school. That would be 20, 2014 is when. But I mean, are you by that time out of college when you got with that group or were aware of that group? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So we jump past college, but what's going on in college? Oh, I want to mention there are three times in my life that I asked for help and did not get it. Oh. And the fourth time was the last time. And I did get it. That's when I learned about these sorts of programs. So first time I asked for help is in the third grade. I said, Mom, I want to die. Really? Yeah. I don't think it really gets clearer than that. Turn this thing off. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's like I had seen people die, 
the elders, right? And I knew that that meant it was over. I didn't know any other way to not feel the pain. So it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be dead. I wanted to not feel hurt anymore. It's totally understandable. As much as a kid can ask for help, I tried. That was time one. How about time two? Time two was um, during college. Remember that best friend that I mentioned in high school? Sure. We went to the art school together. We had a friend breakup, which is like, I feel like that's a way nicer way of putting what happened. She had like a, I don't know, like a psychotic meltdown and became really abusive to me. Oh. And this was my best friend. Yes, that really hurts. Yeah. So just a few phrases that would ring in my mind for years, years and years was, I hope you get hit by a truck. She said that to you? Yes. That's tough. There would be, you know, in, in art school, you go to critiques in all your, all your classes and she'd be there and make comments that were targeted towards me, but nobody else could tell. This is a totally psychological thing. So it'd be like, anytime my work would come up for review, it'd be like, well, this is so unoriginal. That would be the big thing. Like your ideas are crap and they're so unoriginal and you don't have a single original thought in your mind. Same thing when like we lived together in this in this little dorm apartment and I'd be trying to practice guitar. She'd be like, that sounds like Oasis or something. There was a comment, a crit criticism of every single thing that I did. She knew where to stick it. She knew how to hurt you and she would then do that. Yeah. And that, I mean, there were bullies, but then there was my best friend turning like that. That was, that was brutal. That's how I start off college. I lose my best friend, but not really. She's not really lost. She's still there and making sure that every time she sees me. Gives you another shot. Yeah. Yeah. You said earlier three times you asked for help, didn't you? Yep. So this was uh, after, it was really like the stress of school and, you know, this huge betrayal made school really, really difficult. And then I had all these um, compulsive behaviors I was dealing with, lack of sleep. I sought out a therapist, some wise woman to help me. When I told her my story, she said, oh, it just sounds like you're really young. Oh, you're uh, suffering from a case of young. Yeah. I hope she's not practicing anymore. That is one you would get over in time. I really, that's so trash. I see several problems with you. One is you're young. Two is you're a woman. And probably could come out with a few more where you think, wow, you don't miss a trick. She wasn't that helpful. Yeah, exactly. I do want to mention, at the end of college, I met my like first love. Okay. Like really... I can't even emphasize that enough. And from there, this is 2007, 2008. So we graduate, we move in together, and then there's a recession. So then a bunch of the art school contingent had already moved to Brooklyn. So I was just like, well, I guess we will too. 
because logically more jobs. So we do that and it's absolute culture shock for me. We're going to get to time number three when I ask for help because that culture shock situation was the beginning of the end, so to speak, of a lot of things. Midwest and then Brooklyn, New York, right? Yeah. A little bit different. Night and day, kind of different. It was so dirty. And we had moved August, August 2009. And if you move anywhere in August, it's gross. Yeah, sure. It's hot and uh, you can... It's the hottest, nastiest time of year. A lot to take in, a lot to smell. Yeah, it was a lot. It was, I had no idea what I was in for. What did you think you were going to find in Brooklyn? Like a job? Is that the idea? Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't, I wasn't able to, to have a forward looking, I, I would try to imagine the future and there would be nothing. And I would try to, I just worked through it. I just, all I did was work. All I knew how to do was be productive and show people something that meant that I was okay. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have anything to look at inside either. Now, this person, you do you actually move from the Midwest with this? Is it a guy? It's a guy? Yeah, yeah okay. it's a guy. So did you move from the Midwest with this guy to Brooklyn? Is that the idea? Yeah. Now, what did he think that he would find there? Is he also artistic? Yeah. Did you go to the same school? Yeah, we met in at MCAD. We met in college. So you're going there... Th- you're throwing yourself at Brooklyn. Did did either one of you had a job before you actually got to Brooklyn? No. I think he had some connections, and I just went in cold. Okay. My first job was not a job that I enjoyed at all, so I was laid off from it, which I'm glad they did that because I was like, I would never quit anything. You were going to force it to work, and they finally said, nah, goodbye. And that's another thing, too. Like, this is why you stay in things a long time that don't suit you. If you're conditioned that way, that's what you're going to do. I was getting used to a baseline of of high stress, high anxiety with little return. That was my normal. It's hard to say that you can get used to it, but you can get used to anything, even something where all the feedback is not helpful, not nothing's comfortable. This is my life. I guess this is this is me. This is what I do. And until you are shown something different that you can feel, you don't know what you don't know. All you know is you have to get through today. Yeah. And this reminds me when I, in my email, when I reached out to you originally, yes. it was prompted by this like moment I had where I was like, wow, I'm still blaming myself or I had been still blaming myself. For my entire past, because I was sick, I thought I surely my part in all of this pain has been huge because I was sick, as if that would justify the ways in which people treated me poorly. If your vision of yourself is that you're somehow damaged, then what do you expect? Yeah. People are not going to react in positive ways. They're not going to be generous to you in good ways. So I'm just getting I'm just getting what I deserve all the time. Yeah. But that's even 
it was really like listening to your your interviews with people where I'm like, wait a second. No matter what I was going through, it wasn't, I didn't deserve that. No. It's just some way to cope. Even if it's not a very healthy way to cope with it, it is a way to cope with it. I mean, you're just trying to seek understanding. Yeah. You want a reason and you want to, once again, make it into something that you can control. So this relationship doesn't stay great with this guy. Well, yeah. And that has to do, this one's hard. This one, like the friend, the friend breakup and this breakup are like, and then the breakup of my band later. These are the biggest heartbreaks of my entire life. They are big. This person I loved and I thought I was going to get married to, but because of the mental health crisis that I was in, I believed the message of my depression, which was you are bringing this person down you are making things hard for them. If you love this person, you can't be a part of it. You can't be a part of their life. If you want them to be happy, you can't be there. They'll never be happy with you is the idea. Uh, I, I was like, I want, I love this person so much and I want them to have a great life and I can't justify being a weight that is attached to them. It reached the point where, you know, New York City is so, so overstimulating. And for somebody who's highly sensitive and whose chemicals are not totally in balance, for me, being that person, I reached a point where I didn't feel anything anymore. And so when I left, when I left this man, it was my decision based on this faulty logic that I expressed. I remember the conversation was, you know, he, he didn't want me to leave, of course. And he said, do you love me? And I said, I don't know. I can't feel anything. Mm. I'll never, ever forget that. How do you think he felt about you packing up and leaving? I believe that he was heartbroken. I believe that that was not what he wanted. He would ask, what can I do to help? But how can I even have an answer to that? I didn't even know what depression was. We didn't even have those conversations back at this time. This was like 2009-2010. The like discourse around all of these things has really come a long way. This is a podcast about dating violence and domestic violence. With that in mind, he was not that at all from what you're saying. Yeah, he was not he was not that. A good person who really good person. It could have been terrific as just that that you were getting in the way of yourself and you had to just finally leave. Yeah. You had to reset, so to speak. Yeah. So I guess at that point you, what, you get tickets and you get your uh, artist supplies and sketchbooks and brushes and head back to Milwaukee at that point. Is that what happens? No. No. I, I stayed in New York. Oh. I, Stayed with, I stayed with a friend in their spare room for like for a month. And then during that month is when I met person number one. Okay. Dangerous, abusive person number one. Oh my goodness. Going to, going to shows, going to rock concerts, going to clubs, getting into heavy music. That was a 
and continues to be a huge part of my life. So I'd go to metal shows all the time. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very cathartic. Like, I just need a sound bath. I need heavy guitars, lots of low end to just, like, rattle me until oof, until I can, like, be cleansed and rest. Gee. So I met somebody. I will name him because there's no way he's going to listen to this. Okay. His name, his name is Carmine the Fifth. How Italian is that name? Pretty much so. So it's a legacy name already. His father is Carmine the Fourth. He's Carmine the Fifth. Um, he's in a metal band. I knew of him. He was familiar to me because he had worked at a creative agency with the man who I left. Okay. So I thought, like by association there must be something positive too about this person. Mm -hmm. I was just like, whatever. I have no idea where my life is going. I don't know what's next. I just know that I have to figure it out. I got involved with this person. I just, I like walked past him on the sidewalk and gave him a look. And then we talked after a show and when I went out on a date and then right after that was like the love bombing. Oh, Okay. So two weeks in, I love you. He's saying, I love mm-hmm. you. I've never felt this way about anyone. Everything in my life has leading up to this has prepared me for you to be with you. And I had this emptiness in me that was like, man, if this person can love me so much, I should learn about that. I should check this out. It must be worth, it must be worth it. They must see something that, is good. Let me stick my neck out and say, what can happen then is you're thinking this might be the path to me feeling a whole lot better about myself besides having this other person around. I mean, couldn't you feel that way? Well, maybe I'm okay. Yeah, I thought I thought it was like, oh, this is this is a path to like, I don't know, to being complete. And my vision of that was based on movies and TV, how a family looks. Sure. In fiction, I didn't even know, I hadn't even answered the question for myself if I wanted to have kids. Mm -hmm. I just was like, I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to. Maybe that's going to be a thing. I was so open to it because I reached a point where there was nothing else. Like there just has to be something else. I always wanted there to be, you know, could it just be better? Mm -hmm. I'm going to see if this could be better, could be the thing that makes it better. That you know, the you can check the boxes here with this guy like disparaging the ex. Yes. Essentially saying, like, you know, she just got really boring or Or she was crazy. Sometimes you hear that. Oh yeah. He didn't say she was crazy, but disparaging her, I still think calling somebody boring that you've been with for a long, long time. That's not very nice. Next, porn and sex addiction. This guy. I had never seen that. I had a lot of hangups around that stuff. It was just like a world that hadn't been discussed. Sex, sexuality, all of that was kind of, it was kind of a mystery. And by the time I had left my first love, I couldn't feel anything. I was like, I want to be able to to be intimate with this person, but I can't. And so 
this next guy, Carmine, was over-the-top sexual in a very disgusting way. But I thought, well, this is, you're supposed to, you're supposed to have sex with the person you're with. So, like, that's what we're doing. But a result of that was I had constant UTIs. Mm. I was really, really, really unwell. He would say, I have needs. And to this day, if I hear a man say that, I'm like, I got to go. I just think, like, I know what you're going to say next. It's going to be about how I'm not doing enough sex stuff. It's, like, always what it is. But, yeah, if I didn't submit to sex acts in the morning or the evening, there would be shaming and criticism. And it felt like bullying. He did not stop after I said stop. No did not mean no. No. So that was taken away from me. You know, I thought my words mattered. They did not in this, in this, to this person in need of control and dominance, etc. It's taken me a long time to call it rape, to call it what it is. But that is what that was. Yes, it is. I always wanted to minimize it because it was like, well, I wasn't accosted in a dark alley by a stranger. You weren't jumped. Yeah. I was with this person. So it's, you know, you think like, oh, well, I've had it coming or like, yeah, well, I wouldn't. I got myself here, so again, like, isn't this what I what I deserve for being here? You signed up for whatever happens. Yeah, so I think that's even like the fourth or fifth time that word has come out of my mouth about that because it's been really hard to admit to myself. Yes. So this person, Carmine, would say things like, "All, all I think about is you." But you're so selfish and only think about yourself. I'm sure that's a a familiar one. And that's when I want to do things like eat things that I want or go to yoga. There was a fight on Christmas one time. How dare you go to yoga instead of spending 24-7 with my family? It's Christmas. Right. I'm like, don't you realize like these things are not mutually exclusive? I can do the thing and then I can do the other thing. And we can all be happy. But that wasn't acceptable. You wanted 100% control. Yeah. So like physically during this time, I was was barely eating. I was eating like salads and wine and biking everywhere and doing hot yoga like a maniac. And this is all, it's like all in an attempt to both survive and then also to feel. It's weird. Mm -hmm. But it was very, very extreme. It's almost impossible not to relive it. By talking about it, no doubt about it. Exactly. Financial abuse entered the picture. He would give me gifts and then remind me that he gave me those gifts and remind me how much they cost and that I now owed him. That's exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. Did he find ways to take over some of your financial life itself? I never let it get I never let it get that close. Didn't slide his name into your bank accounts or anything. Thank God. I wouldn't move in with these people and I wouldn't let them into my bank life. Good. Yeah. Ugh. Another thing was, it's hard to explain. He once surprised me 
by bringing my parents to New York City for my birthday. I don't know. It, it's easy to think of that as like, oh, isn't that a nice thing? But I was, I was horrified because I didn't want them to see how unwell I was, and I didn't want them to see how I was living. I felt embarrassed and ashamed and totally steamrolled because I wasn't, I wasn't told, I wasn't asked, and I was living in a, a very unconventional place. I personally, I loved living there. I didn't want anyone to see it because it was so outside of the realm of what they had seen in their life. It was dirty, and uh, it was really a kind of a free-for-all. So your parents, how did they react to taking this place in? Were they shocked? Honestly, I don't really know. I think they were just, they just wanted and needed to see me. I would think somebody like your father, who was career Air Force, it's a very, typically very, if there is such a thing as normal existence. I just didn't want him to see it. So then I, I remember when I saw them, I, my reaction was like laughing and crying at the same time. It was overwhelming. I guess so. To him, it was like, what do you mean? I gave you this. I brought you your family. Like you, whatever. Of course, it was like, I. You don't appreciate anything I do for you. It was kind of like that. Yeah. There was, uh, I bought you a ring. That came up. But that was only brought up to imply that I bought you a ring and so you owe me this. I'm asking you for this. I bought you the ring and so. So therefore. Yeah. Now I'm coming back for some version of payment. Was the ring intended to be a wedding ring or just a ring? Honestly, I never saw it. I think it was in, uh, implied to be like an engagement ring. I see. Okay. Interesting. Way to go. Yeah. I was just really upset by that. This is the conclusion to part one with Annie. Be looking for part two on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com.